Luke 16, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke here for a while. My hope and plan is to finish this book by the end of this year, so we'll see how the Lord answers that prayer. But this morning we're talking about stewardship. All of life is a stewardship. So I wonder if these questions have rolled around your, your mind in different stages of life. Uh, pre-teens tend to ask this, am I there yet? Am I old enough to do what I really want to do with my life? Teenagers ask, who am I? What do I believe? How am I going to live my life? In your 20s, you ask, do I matter? Will my life count? Will I get to do the things I've always wanted to do? In your 30s, you ask, how do I do all of this? Life seems so busy and complicated. How do I manage all of this? In your 40s, you ask, is this it? Is there anything more to life now? What's next? In your 50s, you ask, can I keep going? Will I finish what I've started? In your 60s, you ask, am I obsolete? Has my time run out? What's next? In your 70s, you ask, was it worth it? Did I live the right way? Did I do what I wanted to with my life? In your 80s, you ask, who am I now? What will the rest of my days look like? In your 90s, you ask, are we there yet? <laughs> Coming back full circle to how it was when we were kids. All of life is a stewardship. The Bible teaches that life on earth is a precious stewardship. Living on earth is stewarding everything from our bodies, our time, our relationships, our money. Stewarding something means we understand that it's not ours. Instead, we're supervising something, taking care of something, managing it. It's us living on purpose. The world stewards their life too, but they usually have no thought of God or life after this one. They are living for today with the gifts that God gives, but without God himself. And as we live on earth, we, we tend to plan. We, we all make plans. We, we tend to determine how we're going to live today based upon information that we've had the days prior. So, so how did you live yesterday? What did you do yesterday? I'm quite certain I'm the only one here who wrote a sermon yesterday. Did anyone else write a sermon on Saturday? I'm the only one. Did you spend your Saturday preparing for what you would miss out on Sunday? Because today is a busy day. We have a meeting afterwards and set up. So maybe you spent your Saturday preparing yourself for Monday because Sunday was going to be busy. Or some of you thought, yeah, no, I didn't get that far at all. You stewarded your time yesterday based upon what the future holds. And our passage today informs us, we're going to look at all of Luke 16, Lord willing, that there's two ways to live in this world. To, to not live in expectation of what we know is coming is to live foolishly. And to live in expectation of what we know is coming is to live faithfully. If you know that you have a big test on Wednesday, and yet you don't spend Tuesday preparing for that test, you're living foolishly. And yet, if you know you have a big meeting this week and you do come prepared and, and ready for that, that meeting to discuss all that's going to be happening, you're living faithfully. You either steward your time well or you don't, living faithfully or living foolishly. And the Bible tells us to plan for the future. The Word of God says it's faithfulness to steward our, our opportunities, our money, our affections, our time, and our response to the Bible wisely. All of our lives are either on the path to faith or foolishness. And each, each stage of our life, we tend to ask those questions that I let off with is to evaluate how we're living. And I think they're good questions to ask. 
And this is part of why it's important to gather with the church every week, uh, to bring our lives in line to be evaluated by the Word of God. One of the reasons we come and gather is to steward our lives better, to understand what the Word says and apply it to our life. So here's my main point. Here's the main idea this morning, okay? It should be on the screen behind me. There are two ways to live, the way of faith and the way of folly. We are to faithfully steward all that God has given us for his glory. Our our lives are a stewardship from God, all of our life, our homes, our possessions, our children, all of it's all the stewardship from God. And this morning, we're going to come back to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see stewardship as the main theme throughout the chapter. And and really, this chapter is all one cohesive thought by Luke, so we're going to look at the whole thing. But I have something very different this morning. I have not one point, not two points, not even three. I have five points. So for those of you who love outlines, this is like Christmas, okay? Five points as we walk through the Word, and, and it should be on the screen. There it is. So first, stewardship of our opportunities. So Luke chapter 16, verse 1, if you don't have a Bible open, you're going to get lost, you're going to get confused, you're going to get thinking about dinner or lunch or something else. So have the Bible open as we walk through here. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Parables that we have in the scriptures are intended to teach us one main point. So here's the main point of this parable. God's children are to steward their opportunities, or to to be shrewd in a certain way to use our wealth for this age of this world to secure a home for the world to come. This life is not all that we will live. It's true here in this parable, and it's true in the last parable of this chapter. There is more to this life than you can see, and Jesus wants us to look forward. Don't don't get your eyes stuck on just what's in front of you. Look ahead. So here we have a rich man and a manager, and the manager is a screw-up, essentially, and we learn that he's being fired. Okay, it kind of feels awkward. You're getting this story here. Uh, if you've ever been fired, but uh, what's usually your first impulse after you're fired? Well, the first, if you have a family, is how am I going to secure money so that they won't starve and that the power still stays out of my house? And that's what we see here. But he's not much of a well-rounded worker. You see in verse 3, he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he's gotten soft. He's, he's unwilling to dig whether that's ditches, I'm not sure, and he certainly won't ask people for a handout. A manager here was typically a servant who was responsible for overseeing the operation of the household, so it was crucial that they were competent and trustworthy. But this manager was not up to the task, and the master hears of his, uh, his issues and fires him. But he hasn't cleaned out his desk quite yet, 
And he, he still has a position and authority to negotiate agreements with the master's clients. So, so now we see in the story, the manager's thinking ahead. He's using his opportunities today to make tomorrow better. He, he's taking large debts owed his master, and he's giving large benefits. Both of these debtors, uh, through no work of their own, receive a huge discount worth around about two years of salary. So this was a big move by the manager. And when the master finds out, he doesn't chastise him. In fact, he commends him. And what is he commending exactly? It's, it's not his dishonesty. No, it, it's, it's an attaboy response. Like, look, look at you, you, you shrewd rascal. You, you are caring for yourself and your family. I admire your fortitude to plan ahead. He had enough good sense to plan for his future. The master can't do anything about it now, so he, he compliments his shrewdness. The word shrewd is translated prudent or wise. And Jesus is commending the prudence, the wisdom, not the dishonesty. See, the manager provided for himself. He planned for the future. And Jesus wants his followers to observe the way the world works, to learn a lesson from this. People plan for the future all the time. He's not praising the manager's integrity, but his ingenuity. Jesus uses this parable not to endorse dishonesty, but to teach his followers that the sons of light sometimes fail to see how they can shrewdly use the things of this world for their spiritual advantage. See, the manager acts now to prepare for his future. So we're not meant to copy his actions, but we're meant to copy his foresight, his, his ability to see forward. And we are in a similar position. See, nothing in our life belongs to us. We brought nothing into this world, and we will take nothing out. We're all stewards in this world. We have to understand how to leverage our time in this world. And it, it will revolutionize your life if you understand this, that our money will eventually fail us. It's, it's not an adequate God to worship. And he says we need to have friends that outlive our wealth. So who are the friends in verse 9? Well, we're not told exactly. I believe he's pointing to heaven. It could be God in that, the Trinity. It could be wrong. But we do understand that Christians who are trusting the saving work of Jesus Christ, we all will be welcomed into heaven equally, and we will be loved equally. But I don't think we'll all have the same amount of friends in heaven. And why do I believe that? David Gooding in his commentary writes this, If when accounts are rendered and it becomes known in heaven that it was your sacrificial giving that provided copies of the gospel of John, which led to a whole tribe out of paganism to faith in Christ, will not that whole tribe show up towards you with an eternal gratitude, which they will not show towards me who spent my spare cash on some luxury for my own enjoyment? We all have the same opportunities to shrewdly use this world's money for eternal benefit but not all of us do. Some give and give to others, and some spend and spend for themselves. And Jesus is urging his followers to use their work shrewdly while it lasts. Like the manager in the parable, you will come to a day when this current state of affairs won't be here. So we're to use our opportunities to gain for you an eternal dwelling with God and with others. Steward your life well. Use what God has entrusted to you for his glory. Be shrewd with it. Be wise. Be prudent. 
That's the, the, the main thrust. And he uses this term unrighteous wealth. Don't let that sway you in what he's meaning. He, he, in your verse, may say mammon. It's just money. It's, it's the world's money, okay? Every country sets up their currency. He's talking about just the money in which you live. He isn't sunny, saying money's bad. He, he's not making a moral statement about money or wealth, but explaining that it comes from the world and how should we use it. So that leads me to my second point. Stewardship of our money. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In verse 10, the suggestion here is that if you can't handle mundane, simple finances properly, how are you going to handle greater gospel responsibility or service? And this isn't a matter of ability. This is a matter of character. Faithfulness um, is a virtue that grows into smaller things and they'll be exercised in the bigger. God will entrust his disciples with more as we grow in our faithfulness in the small areas of life. And, and so we're looking at the character of what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. And then he looks at the consequences there in verses 11 and 12. And Jesus is saying in, in this whole section here, now is the time to make friends. Use your worldly money to support yourself in eternity. Stop thinking that this world is all that there is. It isn't. This isn't it. There's more to this life than what we see here, than these four walls and these activities that we have, the jobs you have, the family you have that surrounds you. There's more yet that you can't see. And we're to steward our money with eternity in view. All of life is stewardship, especially our money. So let's come back to the understanding about our wealth in this world. Have you thought, where, did, where does it come from? Where does your money come from that you comes to your bank account? How did you come upon it? C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture for us in Mere Christianity. He writes this, Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. We have to understand this point first if we're going to get any of this from the text of Luke 16. Everything, friends, all of your persistence in your work, all of your hard physical labor, all of your diligent study, all of it is made possible by God. Lewis continues, he says, if you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, to God's service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. You cannot manufacture something that God doesn't have. He gave it to you to steward, and as you give it back, it's just, it's already his. He already understands that. So you can never give something to him that he didn't have before. And this is, friends, this is revolutionary to your life if you understand this, because he's talking about stewardship, that we're truly not our own, that God has given us everything. So if you sit there and think, yeah, but I, I went to school and I worked really hard and I'm really smart. Hey, friends, God gave you that as a gift. The strength that you have to work your job, that's a gift 
from God. Everything we have is from God for this way, to steward. And so Lewis concludes, and this is key to understand this, I think hopefully paints a better picture for you. He says, so that when, you talk, when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it is really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It is very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. It's all God's to begin with. I mean, parents, you've seen this, right? You've experienced this at some point when your kids are young. They want to buy you a birthday present, right? And yet they have nothing. You, you're, you're happy to take them to the store. I experienced this a few months ago. And so, Dad, I want to pick out a gift. Don't look. And then when you get to the register, I pay for it. <laughs> but yet I'm overjoyed. I'm thrilled by, by what they've done. But it came from me. Friends, that's how we are with God. Everything. Everything. You think maybe, oh, I've worked really... No, God gave you that ability to steward. So how are you doing at spending God's money? And maybe you're going to push up against this, but every dollar you have in your bank account is God's. It's his. So how are you doing at spending his money? In our world, in our culture, money is spent to secure social standings with people and friends. Money is saved in order to guarantee a comfortable retirement. Money is hoarded to give to children when you die. Money is blown on a whim for pleasure. Money is spent every day, all day. And where is it spent in your life? Because we need to realize that our money is actually God's money. It's His. And we are to think of how we use our money, not just for our own luxury, but for the glory of God. So how are you, friends, at blessing others with your money? We're to use our money in ways that God is glorified in. I mean, honestly, think about this. If it's his money and we're to steward it, isn't spending our money a type of worship? Our spending shows what we believe to be important to us. Our financial receipts are like exam results. Our shopping shows us something. Each dollar in our wallets is a test for whom we serve. Do we serve God? Do we serve ourselves? This doesn't mean that we cannot purchase a home and a nice home. It doesn't mean we can't have cars. It doesn't mean we can't have clothes or take vacations. It doesn't mean that. And that's not what I'm proposing here at all. No, what what I want our church family to think through is how are we spending our money? to think about this before we spend our money. We should use our money. As Christians, we should understand this. Giving is an act of worship, so we should use our money to support local church ministry, to the preaching of the gospel, to evangelism like VBS this week. 
So when I text you, men, this week to give to the offering so that I don't get the penalty and my wife does instead, you'll understand why. You're all going to give to Katie now. I know the girls are going to win. But I don't know if you know this, but on VBS every year, we have an offering for a missionary so we can give to them as they, as they have needs. And we have missions that are here locally and, and abroad, and it's opportunities for us to, to spend our money for the glory of God. And if Jesus is right in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth, so when it fails, they may receive you into your eternal dwellings. The question then is, how many friends will greet you in heaven? If it's true, that's what it is. How many friends will greet you in heaven? Jesus is on to something here. He talks about money quite a bit because we tend to worship money quite a bit. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If I'm driving into downtown Seattle and I don't know where I'm going and there's two people talking to me in the car for directions, one is my wife and the other is my five-year-old, and if I listen to both of them, I'm probably going to get lost. I can't serve two masters to get there. I have to listen to one, and I'm going to choose my wife, so that I can get where I need to go. He said, you can't serve two masters here. We can't serve two gods. He's equating that, God and money, and we need to make up our minds. Will we serve the false God of money and possessions, or will we serve the living God of heaven and earth, the God who owns everything? To be devoted to one is to hate the other. Stewardship is worship. There's no other way to think about it. And we declare who our God is every time we take out our debit card or credit card and open our wallet to make a money decision. And God's agenda, God's agenda from the beginning of Genesis all the way through, God's agenda is to rescue the lost for eternity. Jesus is in the business of inviting men and women to enter his kingdom, and he wants us to use his resources that we manage for this purpose. So have you joined God in that pursuit? Are you spending your money in pursuit of God's plans for this world, or are you spending your money for your own pursuit and your own plans? And I would encourage you, my wife already knows that we're going to sit down this week and look at our own spending, that you should take a deep dive into your bank account this week, and you should ask those hard questions. Where has my heart been? Where are my sights set on, on, this, on this world or on the world to come? Where's your hope? See, our bank accounts tell us a story of ourselves, and you have to look there. Some of us might not like what we find. And yet, friends, God's grace is there to pick us up and to set us straight for his honor and glory. It isn't simply how much money we're to give to the church or to missions or to people in need. It's really the motive behind the giving, behind the spending. So we declare who we're serving by the type of house that we buy and the way that we use our house. You declare who you're serving by how you use your your possessions, your time, your energy. It's not that you can't be rich. Jesus doesn't condemn richness in this chapter. Instead, he wants to direct our richness, direct how we use our money. 
And the question is, will you let him? So now is the time to evaluate our stewardship of God's wealth that he has entrusted to us. And so we're looking at the stewardship of wealth, and perhaps you came in, you know, out of ignorance, and now by God's help through his word, you'll leave with some understanding, but financial stewardship isn't the only issue. The, the next issue, the, the next point is stewardship of our affections. He turns from the crowd to the disciples, uh, from the crowd of the disciples to the religious leaders, and the Pharisees were really good at convincing people that they were both holy and, in fact, God's people, but Jesus seems to do a very good job throughout the gospel of uh, calling them out on, the, on their falsehood there. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. That right there, that statement there at the end of 15, that God knows your hearts, that should stop us in our tracks. Now, they could fool people, the Pharisees could fool these poor people and those that looked on with admiration, but they couldn't fool God. God knew their hearts. And what's important to see in verse 15 for us is how often we hear this phrase in our world in defense of decision-making. You can hear people say, God knows my heart, as a way to excuse their sin and the refusal to submit to him. It's their way of saying to you, stop looking at me, stop asking questions, God's okay with how I live. But when Jesus says, God knows your hearts, it's a way of communing to us that, that we can't hide anything from God. There's nothing that's, that's hidden from his sight. And so we should, we should tremble when we read that God knows our hearts. We should, be, we should pause and think God knows everything. He knows all that's going on inside of us. And it's the, the knowledge of our hearts that creates the crisis with God. It's why we shouldn't follow our hearts. Our hearts are not the best guide for our life. Our problems lie within our hearts, as Jeremiah 17, 9 informs us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we, we, we don't understand all the depths of our hearts, but God does. He knows our hearts. And then he ends here, for what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. We, we tend to prop up things that are revolting to God. We tend to worship our possessions, our prestige, our position in life, but God sees things differently. God hates idols, and the Pharisees were making idols out of their position and their money, the two things that they truly loved. And if we're not in love with Jesus, then we must be in love with someone or something else. See, where our affections lie tells us something of ourselves. If you remember last week or in chapter 15, the Pharisees thought that Jesus was being too soft on sin by spending, spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And now they have the exact opposite response by Jesus speaking against their love of money. They think he's being too strict. And so they ridicule him in verse 14 and Jesus responds. And then he says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John since, they, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus is showing that the law and the prophets by which they seek to justify themselves, the Pharisees, were actually condemning them. The coming of Christ marked a major shift in human history. And before John the Baptist was on the scene. The preaching was from the Old Testament, but he came and announced the coming of the Redeemer, that Christ was here. And Jesus came and preached the gospel from the very beginning of his ministry. We saw Luke chapter 3. 
And he says here in verse 17, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus needed to say this. Some might think that the law was no longer in effect, meaning that there was a new way to enter the kingdom, but, but there wasn't a new way. Instead, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He said in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And the good news of the kingdom is resulting in a great number of people coming into the kingdom here, is what he's saying. Jesus says everyone forces his way into it. And what he's saying, a vast number of people from the north and the south and the east and the west, and the Pharisees aren't getting this, but everyone else is coming in and hearing this and pushing their way into the kingdom, entering into the kingdom. It's almost like a mad dash for one door, and they're all coming through, that narrow door to get into the kingdom. But then we have verse 18. And in my Bible, it separates it. It seems like out of nowhere, Jesus is talking about possessions and money, and now he's talking about divorce and adultery. And how did he get here? Think about stewardship. Again, the main theme. And if you think about it, you begin to think about money and possessions, and then your mind will gravitate towards your family and their needs and the limitations and desires. Eventually, our minds go to what we love and what we show affection towards. And here in verse 18, I believe Jesus calls to our attention what, we, what usually draws our affection most, our relationships, primarily marriage. And marriage is a stewardship too. How we manage or care for that relationship matters greatly to God. So in the context of this chapter about stewardship as taught by God's word, it makes perfect sense why Jesus would bring up marriage and speak against adultery to a religious people who believed at that time that you could get a divorce for any reason. Some rabbis in ancient Judaism supported divorces for offenses as minor as women burning their husband's dinner. You can't do that, men. Yeah, you, you can laugh. It's hilarious. That's how the Pharisees functioned. Or if the husband just found something he just didn't like about his wife, he could easily go to them and they would grant the divorce. And she looked at him possibly with displeasure and, and go to the Pharisees and they would grant the divorce. And so Jesus is speaking into that culture a culture that didn't steward their money or possessions, and they most definitely didn't steward their marriages. See, God always intended that marriage would be a lifelong endeavor. He intended us to steward that relationship, to not view it as only available for our pleasure, but to serve one another. And this is not a sermon about divorce. That's for another time. This is a sermon about stewardship. We're to steward our marriages. But if you look back into the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24, there was a text that spoke about the law concerning divorce but not to encourage divorce, but instead to regulate it. And the primarily, the point that he's trying to drive home again is to, to protect the abuse of women. That's what was happening here. Men, for foolish reasons, would go and not steward their marriage and look to abuse women in this way. And he's, he's fighting against this. His intention is to remind the Pharisees of the importance of the law. These men claimed they would just stand out there and say, we are the pillars of the Old Testament law, and then they were violating that law every day. 
and, and nowhere more noticeably than the utter disregard for the Old Testament legislation about marriage. They were quick to grant divorces. They wouldn't steward their marriage because they would want to gain respect or, or even money from granting that. And, and these men were, were more concerned about getting applause from others than from God. See, the law did contain regulations for how divorce should be handled so that the woman, who was the more vulnerable party in the situation, would not be destroyed in the process. And there was ways, and that's, a, again, another sermon you walk through on, on the biblical ways that, can, that divorce can happen, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying here, husbands, steward your marriage. Don't, don't capitalize on the woman. And it's all connected because nothing that we have in this world is our own. Coming back to this again, all that we have is only lent to us, it's trusted into us to be spent and used here wisely. In an eternal world, to be different. Our, our money here is not our own. We're stewarding God's money. Our children are not our own. We're, we're not raising kids for ourselves. We're raising them for God. Our spouse is not our own. No, Jesus says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We're to steward our affections. And Jesus highlights that in this area. So that's point three. We're going to keep going. Point number four, stewardship of our time. Jesus now tells here at the end of this chapter another parable, one in which to illustrate the issues he just brought up with the Pharisees. The rich man has chosen to serve money and, and not God, and we see the result. Each section of this chapter begins the same way. And if you look back at verse one, there was a rich man. And now here in verse 19, there's another rich man. And, and life doesn't end too well for the second one. He doesn't steward his time well. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you are in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And this parable here, to be close to Abraham, is to be in the very presence of heaven. One struggle here in these verses is the possibility that we can take it to mean that we, are, we can earn heaven by helping the poor. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Salvation isn't gained by love and good works, but salvation always leads to love and good works, even while we live on earth. James says this very clearly in his epistle, a profession of faith that doesn't allow it show itself in reality by its works is really no salvation at all. And so Lazarus is not justified here either by his poverty. He was obviously a man of God who accepted his suffering without bitterness or hostility. He was faithful in the little things. He stewarded his time well on earth, and now he's carried by the angels to the side of Abraham. But the rich man lived differently. The rich man died and was buried and goes directly to Hades, which is hell, to live in torment. We see some illustrations here of hell that are reaffirmed elsewhere in the scriptures. Hell involves conscious torment. 
The, the, the rich man remains fully conscious of his suffering and torment. Hell is not a dream or a place without feeling. The Bible doesn't say that you're annihilated when you die. You're very much aware of your surroundings. I wonder if you believe in hell. And if you do believe in hell, I wonder who you think goes there. If there is a place of judgment, who are the people that end up in hell? I've talked to people for years, I'm sure you have also, and asked that question. You believe in hell? Who, who do you think lands there? And usually the con- consensus is that hell is full of people who are just a bit worse than me. It's a movable line based upon how life's going. Is hell full of people who are just a little worse than we are? Friends, the Bible says that we all deserve to head to hell. All of us deserve his judgment. We all serve ourselves. We all want to be first. By by nature, we are selfish creatures searching innately to satisfy ourselves here on earth. And we don't plan for the future. We, We live in the moment. And if we're left to ourselves, we would die in our sins. And because God is holy, he will judge every one of us in that same holiness and justice. And yet, God in his love sent his son Jesus to bear the wrath of our sins. He died in our place, satisfying the law, and he rose again, and God accepted his resurrection as payment for our sins. He redeemed us. He saved us. He saved all of those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone. And so if you're here this morning, you're listening, thinking that you have some sort of safety apart from Jesus Christ, you don't. It's a mirage. It's an illusion. You don't. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. See, Lazarus here had a lifetime of suffering, as we read. But now it's his turn to enjoy the comforts of God. All of our suffering, friends, in this world will one day be turned into eternal comfort in the presence of God for those that are trusted in Jesus Christ. Suffering always gives way to glory for the Christian. The first will be last and the last shall be first. And once you're in heaven, you're always in heaven. You're always with God, I should say. But here in this passage, once you're in hell, you're always in hell. Jesus said a a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And what we learn in verse 26 is that time has run out for this rich man. It has been fixed. He didn't steward his time well. And last, he didn't steward the word well. That's the last point. Stewardship of the word. We're almost done here. Look at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, no, Father Father Abraham, but if, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
This man's heart is for his family. He, he doesn't want them to join him. Just think about that. Let that gnaw at you this week. He, he, he knows where he's at, and he doesn't want anyone to come. Hell is not a party where we just have as much fun as we want for all of eternity. That's not what hell is. He doesn't want them to join him. And he's begging Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn him. So he believes they need a sign. Kind of like the repeated calling of the Pharisees to Jesus, why in a show? Just give us more. Give us another healing. Show us again who you are. But what is the sign that Abraham gives? He says we have it in the Word, in the Bible. Do you realize the Old Testament's that good? That's what he's referencing here. The Old Testament. The Old Testament can actually keep you out of hell. Do you believe that? That's one of the reasons why I love preaching from the Old Testament. With hope and faith, we can see forward what God is going to do. The Bible is what instructs our hearts to repent of our sin, to follow and trust in him. And, he, and he's correcting here at the end of this, this foolish view that somehow seeing another miracle will convince someone. If seeing and hearing an apparition would have brought repentance to all, then every room, every street would have been filled with, with, with these rising from the dead all the time. And they need to understand fully that their neglect of God's law was serious enough to land them personally in hell. And he's saying the word of God trumps everything. And people today regularly disregard God's word. Friends, this is how you understand who God is and how you understand who you are and how you can be reconciled to this God. It's through the word that lives are changed. I can stand up here with all the eloquence in the world, but it's the word that changes people. It's not Jeff. It's the word. And, and, and I find it kind of funny that the rich man's suggestion that if God would just raise Lazarus from the dead and go warn them that they would repent. But resurrection isn't enough to convince people. We learn in John's gospel that God did raise a Lazarus from the dead. In John 11, you remember that? And what was the response? John 11 says, Many of the Jews therefore had come with Mary and had seen what he did and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Yeah, he raised someone from the dead. The sign that he said. It make it sound like it was just like he did something small. And we raised someone from the dead. And he says in verse 48, if we let him go in like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They had a resurrection. They could see Lazarus. They could talk with him. They knew he was dead. And he could come and have a conversation. And how did they respond? They made plans to put Jesus to death. Resurrection was not enough. And the implication is that they had the same messengers that Lazarus had. That's what he's saying here. That's what Abraham's saying to this rich man. Lazarus heard the same thing you did. And he stewarded his time well in the word, listening to the prophets. And he's in heaven. He's responded. But the rich man failed to listen to God's word. He didn't steward the word. 
And the application is for the Pharisees listening. Their arrogant refusal to take God's word seriously and then convicted of sin to repent and believe has characterized them throughout Luke's gospel. If the Pharisees will not listen to the law and the prophets and then in conviction of sin turn to the one to whom the law and the prophets testify and point to, then there's no hope for them. Not even the resurrection of Jesus when it happens. It won't persuade them. And friend, if you do not believe what God has said in his word, then you will never believe anything else God does either. And you will never truly believe in Jesus. The Bible contains all we need to know in order to be saved. And so we need to steward the word well. Well, this has been a sermon on stewardship. Stewardship of our opportunities, our money, our affections, our time in the word. And all of these things tie into our soul. It's really a stewardship of our soul. How will you steward your soul in these areas? How will you steward the opportunities that God has given you at work or at school and those friendships and those acquaintances? How will you steward your money? Remember, it's all from God. How will you steward your, your uh, affections, relationships you have? How would you steward what God has given you in, in, in skills of writing and in managing and the skills that you have carpentry and repairing and the income that comes from that work? He's entrusted it to you. So how will you steward it? Is your money only for yourself and for your comfort and luxury? Or are you able to steward it to help others that are in need? How are you stewarding your time? Are you living thinking that you have unlimited time on earth? And I'm sure that the rich man thought that, that he had so much time, but he really didn't. How are you stewarding the word? Do you enjoy reading the Bible? Is that a regular practice in your life? Do you regularly come to sit under the preaching of God's word? See, all of these areas are, are stewardship of our souls. And to my unbelieving friends here, will you use your one life here to take hold of eternal life? Or will you waste your life and suffer forever in hell? And you see, your, your days, your, your breaths in between of all the activities in this world, those are stewardship opportunities that will echo forever. And Christians, what a great stewardship we have on this earth. I mean, what amazing things that God has done in allowing us to manage our time and our energy and our stuff, all, all for the, the reward of heaven waiting for us. We're, we're to steward now. But one day, in glory, gathering around the throne of God, we will be co-heirs with Christ. Just let that rock your mind this week. We'll be co-heirs with Christ. Normal Christians serve God, not their possessions. And they view their earthly possessions and money as just a loan from God, not their own. And we use our money shrewdly in light of eternity, in light planning for the future. And we deploy our money in order to, to win the loss for Christ. So I'm praying that God's word would sink deep into your heart this morning, this week, and take root and bear much fruit. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And we admit that all of us have allowed other things at some points this week to creep into our minds and our lives that push you out to the side. And, and we've forgotten, I've forgotten, God, this week that everything we have is yours and we're only stewards of it. And we thank you for your grace that we can understand this clearly this morning. And we thank you for your grace that allows us to admit that we have lived wrong and seeking forgiveness and newness in life. And we know that you forgive us if we come and confess to you and help us now to, to live for you. I do pray that we can live shrewdly in this life, stewarding our souls and all the resources that you give us well for your honor and glory. Father, Father I do pray for this week as we have an opportunity to steward the resources of this church, the people, the time, and the money, and the building. All these things are gifts from you. I pray that we would steward it well. And God, we ask that you would bring fruit. That kids would come sitting under the word of God and the teaching of your word, that they would understand that your spirit would bring conviction to their little hearts. You would help us as leaders to have the right words to, to explain your, your word to them that they can understand. We do pray that, that many would come to know you through faith and other families would join our, our church family and you would bring growth to this week. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you in this way. Now we pray that you would take your word and sink it deeper than our hearts and allow it to work its way through our lives. It's all for your honor and glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.